Well, good morning. morning. Well, this right here is going to come up on the screen is a picture of a statue that I passed countless times during my time as a student at Texas A&M University. Have you ever heard a better sermon opening than that? I mean, just tremendous. It's a statue of a name of a man by the name of James Earl Rudder. Now, if you get a statue of yourself at a place like Texas A&M University, then clearly you are a big deal. Okay? Clearly you have done something worthwhile, or clearly you have an enormous amount of money. So I decided to do a little research one day, and I walked up to the Rudder statue there on campus, and I read the inscription at the bottom. And here's what it said. In memory of James Earl Rudder, Born 1910, died 1970, class of 1932, heroic soldier, commissioner of the General Land Office of Texas, 16th president of Texas A&M University. So that's why James Earl Rudder has a statue on the A&M campus. That's what makes him special. He was the 16th president of Texas A&M University from 1959 until 1970. That's what makes him unique. Or so I thought. You see, my view of Mr. Rudder changed dramatically one day in the summer of 2004. I was studying abroad in the country of France, in the northern region known as Normandy. And one day we took a field trip to a place called La Pointe du Oc. Here's a picture of La Pointe du Oc, the peak of the mounds. We're on June 6, 1944, also known as D-Day. A group of army rangers led by commanding officer James Earl Rudder scaled those cliffs right there with folding ladders and ropes on a mission. A mission to reach and destroy the German gun batteries at the top of the cliff, thus securing a beachhead for the Allied forces during the invasion that day at Omaha Beach. At the end of two days of fighting, the Rudder Rangers, as they came to be called, had been decimated. What started out as a group of over 225 men had been cut down to approximately 90. Rudder himself had been wounded twice in the course of the fighting. And yet this group of men ultimately secured the beachhead, saving countless lives of Allied troops in the process. A truly heroic feat. And as I walked the grounds at Point Duoc that day, I was overwhelmed with emotion as I looked down at the ground, which you can see the divot still there from the bombs landing. And I thought of the bravery of these men who had risked it all that day in June of 1944. And I was overwhelmed. I was also overwhelmed with emotion and of sadness at the loss of life that occurred that day on both sides. And as I came to the tip of the point, I saw something that I will never forget. I saw a flag. Not just any flag, but this flag. (laughs) A Texas A&M flag right there in northern France. 
I don't know who placed it there, but the French officials had allowed it to stay up in honor of the bravery and the courage of fighting Texas Aggie class of 1932 and future president of the university, James Earl Rudder. Now, when I went back to school that following semester, I would walk by that statue like I always had. And I would look at it like I always did. But my feelings when I saw that statue, well, those had forever been changed. My knowledge of James Earl Rudder's past completely transformed my gratitude and my respect for him in the present. Friends, I believe the same is true when we take time to look at the totality of history in regard to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, 11 days from now, we're going to wake up, probably put some Christmas music on, head to the tree, and open up presents as we celebrate the greatest gift this world has ever seen, the incarnation, which we just sang about, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we're going to focus on his birth. And we're going to focus on his birth looking forward. And rightly so. Because the baby at Bethlehem became the one who hung on the cross at Calvary. And the manger reminds us of what is to come. But how often do we stop, turn around, and look the other way from the manger? Look backwards at what came before. How often do we look at the baby of Bethlehem who went on to the cross of Calvary and understand that he is also the Christ of the covenants? He's the promised Messiah. He's the ultimate seed of Abraham. He's the long-awaited Davidic king. There are 66 books in the Bible that you are holding in front of you. 39 of those make up the Old Testament. 39. So 39 of those books were written before the incarnation. Before the birth of Jesus. Before that first Christmas morning. But do not make a mistake and think that they do not inform us about who Christ is. There's a fascinating exchange that happens in the Gospel of John in chapter 5. Jesus does a miracle. He does a healing like he usually did. He did it on a Sabbath, which he liked to do. And this made the Pharisees irate like it always did. So they come and they challenge Jesus. And Jesus does something remarkable. He doesn't bow. He, he, he fights back in John 5. He says, let me tell you a little something about me. And he, and he talks to them about his co-equality with God the Father. And his deity. And then he calls upon a variety of witnesses. And he says, how about John the Baptist? I call John the Baptist. I call my works. I call the words of my father. And then he says, and I have the witness of scripture. Look what he says in John 5.39. Jesus tells these Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. It is these that testify about me. I want you to think about that for a second. 
what scriptures is he referring to? He's referring to the Old Testament. That's all they had at the time. And he says, you read those scriptures and they speak about me. And yet I would say that most Christians I speak to really have no concept of how Jesus Christ, born in a manger, is connected to the Old Testament, the 39 books that came before. And that is unfortunate. Because not understanding the connection between Jesus and the Old Testament is like watching a movie or a show or a football game on one of those old school tube televisions. I probably just offended a few people in here. But those tube televisions, you know, I can watch a football game on a tube television. And I can know what's going on. But how different is that viewing experience when I watch it on an LED 1080p flat screen? A completely different viewing experience. The colors just jump out, jump out at you on the LED one. The colors just pop. I can see every single blade of grass. Now there's no doubt that one can know Christ as Savior and not know the Old Testament and not understand the covenants. But they sure miss out on some of the beautiful colors of Jesus that when you look at Scripture in its totality, in its totality, the high deaf view portrays. With that being said, my desire this morning, you can tell I like this subject, my desire this morning was to cover how Jesus fulfills all the covenants, which he does. But when I flew that idea by Roger and by Tim and by Will Davis, the quizzical looks I received in return made me reevaluate my mission. Because that is just way too much material to cover in one sermon. But it would be a great personal study for each person here to look at how Christ fulfills all the covenants. So instead of looking at how Christ fulfills all the covenants, which he does, instead we're going to focus in on how he fulfills one in particular. And that is the Davidic covenant. Now before we can discuss how Christ fulfills the Davidic covenant, we need to define our terms, don't we? We need to understand what we're talking about when we speak of a covenant. In the general sense, a covenant is simply a binding agreement or compact between two or more parties. So it's, a, it's an agreement between two or more parties. Now, a biblical covenant is that on steroids because we're talking about the God of the universe. Amen? A little bit more intensity. So a biblical covenant is an agreement between God and his people or a representative of his people that involves a promise and an anticipated fulfillment that moves the elect, moves the people of God closer to total fulfillment through the promises that are found in Christ. So I'll say that again. You don't need to write this down. It'll be on the website. A biblical covenant is an agreement between God and his people or a representative of his people that involves a promise and anticipated fulfillment that moves the elect Closer to the fulfillment of all promises that ultimately come through Christ. So basically, a covenant has a redemptive component to it. It has a promise with a future fulfillment, and those future fulfillments are all found in one person, Jesus Christ. 
There's six major covenants in the Old Testament. They're all, and all the covenants are in the Old Testament. All the major biblical covenants are there. And if you can understand these six covenants and how they point to Christ, progressively reveal the coming of Christ, and show how he is the ultimate fulfillment, I guarantee you it will change the way you look at Christ. You'll be like me and that old rudder statue. You will never look at Christ the same way again. The six covenants in order are the Adamic, the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, and the New Covenant. Six covenants. Just think, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, New Covenant. Now, as you can tell, for us to get to the Davidic, we're going to fast forward through a ton of biblical history, aren't we? We're going to hit the fast forward button on the DVR of biblical history, and we're going to zoom past Adam and Eve in the garden in the fall. We're going to zoom past Noah and the ark. We're going to zoom past God's calling of Abraham and establishing a people for his own possession, the nation of Israel. We're going to zoom past the growth of Israel and the enslavement of Israel in Egypt and God calling Moses to lead them out. But because of their lack of faith, they wander in the Exodus, zooming past Joshua and conquering the land. But then we're also zooming past the dark period that came after that, which is found in the book of Judges. And we now arrive at the time of David, a time where Israel has reached its zenith, guys. They are united. The nation is united. They have a godly king named David. They've acquired much land through military success. They've moved the capital to Jerusalem. I mean, this is the best of times for the nation of Israel. But David finds himself irked by something. Here David is walking around this palace. And he realizes something. That God had no permanent palace. God had no permanent residence. God had no temple. It would be as if one of us had risen to great financial success. And we were living in the dominion right up there on the, on the top. And we're walking around our house one day and we realize the person that, who had brought us all this success, the person who was responsible for our financial status was living in temporary, subsidized, low-income housing across town. And it didn't sit right with David. So he calls the, the prophet Nathan. He says, Nathan, come here, man. I'm going to fly something by you. Nathan's like, what's up? Something like that, okay? And David says, here's the deal, Nathan. I want to build God a permanent home. I want to build him a temple. What do you think, Nathan? Nathan seeks the Lord and ultimately comes back and says, David, God does not want you to build him a temple. There are, there, he, David was a warrior king, and there was too much blood on his hands. But then Nathan tells David something remarkable. He says, God does not want you to build him a house, but David, listen to what God is going to build for you. Listen to what he's going to do through you, David. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 12 through 17. We're actually going to go through it really fast. We're going to be all over the Bible today. But this is our base passage where we're going to see one of the greatest promises given in all of Scripture. So turn there with me, would you? 
to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. Starting in verse 12, this is Nathan speaking the words of God to David. Nathan says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So if we were going to go back a few verses to verse 8, 8 through 11, Nathan tells David and reminds David of all the things that God had already done through him. He had made his name great. He had been with him all the way. He had given him victory in battle. He had made him king from just being a shepherd boy. And then as we transition to verses 12 through 17, God now tells David, and here's what I'm going to do through you in the future. In the future. Now, when you interpret these verses, it can be a little bit tricky. It can be a little bit tricky, a little bit dicey. Because some of these prophecies have multiple fulfillments, and some of them are fulfilled by different people. So some of them speak directly to Solomon, David's son, who would continue the reign. Some speak to future kings that would come in the line of David. Some speak to multiple parties, and some speak to the ultimate heir of David, the ultimate Davidic heir, Jesus Christ. So instead of spending all of our time picking apart verse by verse which, which one's fulfilled by whom, I want to focus on the clear verse that clearly states that this ultimate heir is Jesus Christ and the key verse of the entire Davidic covenant, and that is verse 16. So if you'll look at verse 16 says, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. This is really important. Do not miss this. There are three components to the Davidic covenant that we find right here in verse 16. Number one, a future descendant. It says, your house. So someone in the line of David. Number two, we see a throne. A place of authority. And number C, we, three, we see a kingdom. A kingdom. These are the three aspects to remember in regards to the Davidic covenant. A, a descendant of David, a throne of authority, and an everlasting kingdom. Now, if 2 Samuel 7 was all we had in reference to the Davidic covenant, you may be there going, I don't know. I don't know if we can really go there, Michael. Well, it's not. There are over 40 passages in the Old Testament that make reference to this covenant and even build upon it after David and Solomon have died. So I want to take a minute and look at a few of these to show you how important these promises were from 2 Samuel 7 and how they worked themselves out through the rest of the Old Testament. It's important to understand that. 
And the first one's found in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. This is written roughly 400 years after David, guys. 400 years after David. Jeremiah writes about this future Davidic king with these words. Behold, the days are coming. Future, declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, descendant. And he will reign as king, throne, kingdom. And act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Notice Jeremiah describing a descendant of David reigning over a kingdom from Israel. We see the same thing spoken of in the prophet Ezekiel. Chapter 37, verses 24 and 25. Ezekiel, a contemporary of Jeremiah, writes these words. My servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons, forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Once again, descendant of David, ultimate authority, everlasting kingdom. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, a passage we read a lot this time of the year. You'll never read it the same way. Isaiah looking forward to this future king. This, this, this one who would come in the line of David, who would reign. Listen to what he says in verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Look, look at verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So here's my point. Here's what I'm trying to show you. The prophets writing hundreds of years after David, hundreds of years after Solomon, are still looking forward to the future for the fulfillment of this promise. They're still looking forward to a son of David who would come, who would establish a kingdom and reign forever. They're looking for the king. They're looking for the Davidic king. They're looking for the Davidic king known as the Messiah. Which is just a Hebrew word meaning anointed. That when translated into Greek and then makes its way to English is pronounced Christ. They're looking for the Christ. They're anticipating the Christ. The newborn king. I don't watch a lot of TV, but when I do, when I, when I get hooked on a show, I get hooked. I'm all in. That's just the way I'm wired. That's my personality. And my favorite show of all time, not even close, is the show Lost. One of the best. I mean, it had everything you needed for just great cinema. It had complex characters. Time travel. <laughs> flashbacks. Multiple universes. Redemption, forgiveness, faith, true love. I mean, it was remarkable. And one of the things Lost became known for, 
And this would drive my wife, Victoria, nuts. It's towards the end of the episode, all of a sudden this eerie music would come on. And there would be a scene that would take you to the edge of your seat. And then all of a sudden, episode ended. And you'd be like, no! And the worst were the ones that ended a season. Because now you knew you had to wait multiple months for that story to pick back up. And I used to love it when previews would start coming on a few weeks before the premiere and you would get a glimpse into what the next season was going to be like. And your anticipation would just overflow. And this edge of your seat anticipation and excitement and expectation is exactly what is happening throughout the Old Testament and throughout these covenants. It's building It's building, it's building, it's progressively being revealed. And it continues to point to this one who would come. This son of David, this Messiah, this Christ. So with that being uh, understood, with with us there from the Old Testament, I want to fast forward 700 years to the beginning of the New Testament. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1. Do you know how the New Testament begins? It begins with these words, guys. Once I find it, I'll tell you. (laughs) This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's how the entire New Testament begins. It's a genealogy. Why Abraham? Why Abraham? Why mention Abraham? Because he's the father of the Jews. And because as part of the Abrahamic covenant, his seed, through his seed, would come the one who would bless the entire world. Why David? Because the Messiah, the one who would fulfill all of the Abrahamic covenant, was to come through the line of, of David. And in verse 16, when Matthew ends the genealogy, he uses these words Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Matthew starts out his entire gospel. The entire New Testament starts out by Matthew saying, Hey guys, Jesus of Nazareth. Is from the line of David. He's from the line of Abraham. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the Davidic king. So we've got descendant of David. Check. But what about a throne? What about a kingdom? Well, our brother Luke helps us with that. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. Look what Luke, through the angel Gabriel, applies to Christ. Once again, you've probably heard these verses before, but listen. This is Gabriel speaking, speaking of the coming of Christ. He says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Descendant of David. 
throne of authority, everlasting kingdom, the Davidic covenant, Jesus Christ, the Davidic king. Jesus Christ, the God-man, fully God, fully man. He's the son of God. He's the son of man. The fullness of his deity, co-equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And yet the fullness of humanity as the true son of David. As you think about that baby in the manger next week, remember that not only is he the savior of the world, but he is also the rightful heir and the long-awaited Davidic king. And that is tremendous. Is just tremendous. Now, part of Christ's role as the Davidic king is still future and tied to his second coming, tied to his return. There are elements of the covenant that are already, there are elements of the covenant that have not yet happened. They're still future. But because Christ literally fulfilled the prophecy of Micah 5 2, that says he, the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And like Christ literally fulfilled the prophecies, prophecy of Psalm 22, which says his hands and his feet would be pierced, a psalm written hundreds of years before crucifixion had been invented. And just like the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14, that says the Messiah would be born of a virgin. And just like he literally fulfilled the prophecies, the multiple prophecies of Isaiah 53, such as him being pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and that by his scourgings we would be healed Because of the literal fulfillments that he literally fulfilled in his first coming, Christ will literally fulfill the remaining promises of the Davidic covenant in his second coming. Namely, the earthly kingdom that was promised to David in 2 Samuel, prophesied by the prophets, and expected by the apostles in the New Testament. I know that's a lot to digest in a short amount of time. And some of y'all are just like, hey, keep feeding me. This is good. And some of y'all are going, hey, dude, you had me at hello? But you lost me like two minutes afterwards. And if that's you, I understand. So let me leave all of us with a few takeaways that we can all walk out of here with. Why study Christ as the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant on December 14, 2014? What does that have to do with me in San Antonio 2,000 years later. I see three things. Number one, understanding Christ as the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and all the other covenants is a tremendous apologetic for the reality of our faith. Think about it, guys. The Bible is 66 books written by approximately 40 people in three different languages, on three different continents over a span of 1,600 years. And yet, it reads as if it were written by one. Because it was. Because the ultimate author of the Scriptures is the Holy Spirit. It's God. There is no other way to explain the unity of Scripture and the amount of prophetic fulfillments that we see in it other than the fact that it is of divine origin. Its source is God. Secondly, understanding Christ as the fulfillment of the covenants brings hope. It brings hope. 
Because when I see God's faithfulness to his promises from the past that he's already accomplished, it gives me great hope and great confidence in the present and trusting, with him, trusting in him in my future. When I see how he's fulfilled his promises from the past, his alreadys, it gives me great hope and confidence and faith in the things that are not yet. Lastly, Christ is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and all the other covenants should cause each one of us to fall down and worship him. Worship him. Because not only is he the baby at Bethlehem, who went to the cross of Calvary, but he is the Christ of the covenants. Friends, he's the seed that would crush the serpent, spoken of in the Abrahamic covenant. He's the second Noah, just like those who were in the ark were saved from judgment and destruction outside of it. Those who are in Christ will be saved from judgment and destruction to come. He's the ultimate seed of Abraham by whom the entire world would be blessed. He's the perfect fulfillment and the perfect righteousness of the Mosaic law, putting an end to the law. He's the true heir and the rightful son of David in whom the throne is promised in the Davidic covenant. And he's the mediator of the new covenant, the one that brings all the covenants to fruition in him. All the covenants point to him and all the covenants are fulfilled by him. And he is one of a kind and worthy of our praise. Now in closing, I want to show you guys a book that means a lot to me. This is a journal. And while I love the color lavender, this is not my journal. This is a journal that was given to me by my wife. Victoria gave this to me as a gift right before we were married. And it is a journal that she wrote in and prayed in during the course of our dating relationship. Now before this journal, she had a different journal. And in that other journal, she would pray to God about her future husband and about her future relationship, and about her future marriage, and what that would look like. And when we started dating, Victoria became convinced early on, by the grace of God, that maybe, perhaps, I was the guy. That I was the one she had been praying about and waiting for. So she decided to start a new journal. And in the new journal, talk about how our relationship fulfilled many of her prayers that she had written beforehand. Not all of them. Because I'm a sinner. And not all the expectations were realistic. But that's a whole other deal. She's right over here, so it's okay. She knows I was going to say that. But when she gave me this journal, she said, Michael, I want you to have this. Because this is about you. All those times I prayed for a husband, all those times I asked God for a partner, I was ultimately praying about you. You are the one I've been waiting for. Friends, God is so amazing, and He wrote us an incredible journal, an incredible diary, 
where he told us of his heart for us, his desires for us, his plan for us. And in it, he told us who this whole thing is ultimately all about. And it's not about me. And it's not about you. And it's not about us. It's about him. It's about him. It was always about him. He was and he is the one whom we've been waiting for from the very beginning. Jesus Christ is the creator of history and Jesus Christ is the center of history. And where you stand, where it comes to him, will ultimately determine your eternal destiny. If you are someone who has already trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I pray you would walk out of here this morning and you would just worship him. Just worship God. Worshiping the Father who sent the Son. Worshiping the Son who went to be our sacrifice. Worshiping the Spirit who seals us and indwells us and conforms us and perseveres us to the image of His Son. He is so much bigger and He is so much better than we give Him credit for. For those of you in here who have never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, never received that free gift of salvation that comes by grace through faith in Christ, I pray God would reveal himself to you today like never before. That you would come to see that the creator of the world is the Christ of the covenants. And that the baby at Bethlehem who hung on the cross of Calvary is coming back. And he's coming back as the conquering king, the Davidic king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. If you have never seen the Christ of Calvary as the Lord of your life, I'm going to lead us in a prayer in just a minute. And it is my prayer that today would be your day of salvation. The day when Christ became more than just a pathway to presence but the true king in your life now and forevermore. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning just in awe of you. I'm speechless. I just, as I think about your word that you have given us, and I think about the totality of it and the beauty of it and the creativity of it and the faithfulness to it, God, it, it just causes me to, to worship. You have a plan that you have been executing from the beginning. And God, we worship you. God, I thank you for the incarnation. I thank you for what Christ did on our behalf that we could not do for ourselves. God, you know that each one of us here is a sinner. The Bible tells us so that no one is righteous, no, not one, that everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. And that because of that, God, we are eternally separated from you. And there's nothing we can do to earn ourselves back to you. But you and your great love and your great mercy and your great faithfulness sent the Messiah, the God-man, fully God, fully man, who walked this earth and lived out a perfect life and then willingly went to the cross. And for what? For the payment for our sin, every single one of us, as they were nailed to the cross, and God, you say that if we put our faith in you, if we put our faith in you for the forgiveness of sins, you will forgive our sin 
and wipe it away as far as the east is from the west. And we will have an eternal address with you and we will be able to worship you in spirit and truth. And God, there will be a day when we will worship you in in, in the fullness of who you are. And we long for that day. Thank you, God, for this church. Thank you for these people. Send us out into the world as beacons of light in a world that desperately needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for being God and an incredible God you are. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There will be prayer partners up here after the song. Please stand and worship with us this last song of the day. Have a wonderful rest of your Sunday.